following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are continuing today in a short series through the month of August. Uh, it's called Vision, Mission, and Values. And uh, I said some of this last week, but uh, you know, this whole thing is repetitive to some degree, and I think for good reason, because it is both healthy and helpful to take time as a church to be reminded of the principles that shape our philosophy of ministry and keep us focused on why we exist. And I think it's important for us to be reminded often that the church is different than any other organization on the planet in a lot of important ways. But it is not immune from the potential to drift off of the course of keeping the main thing the main thing. And so this series is going to be beneficial for anyone who has begun attending or has become a member of Love City in the time since we've taken a moment to focus on these things. But uh, it'll also be good for those that just need a reminder, which I think is all of us. So... uh, Last week, we took time to discuss our vision, and when we say vision, that can mean a lot of different things to different people, we mean the goal we are trying to accomplish. What is the vision of Love City Church? And for us, it's to see as many people as possible meet, worship, love, and joyfully serve Jesus Christ. That is our vision. So we took time last week unpacking why it is right for that to be our vision, and there was also an invitation for you to consider that as a a vision for your own life, as a primary goal for your own life upon which all the rest of your goals rest. Uh, This week, we're going to look at our mission. And when we say mission, what we mean is the way we're going to accomplish the goal. And for us, our mission is to love God, love people, and make disciples. So we want to see as many people as possible meet Jesus. The way we're going to go about that is by loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Next week, I'm going to make a valiant attempt at taking us through our six core values. That's that we're gospel-centered in everything. We believe God's called us to redefine love biblically. We believe there's strength in diversity, the importance of unity, humility, and gratitude among the body of Christ. And so uh, pray for me. That's a lot for one sermon. Uh, In the fourth week, we're going to take time to discuss church governance, uh, biblical offices of leadership, and how those are designed to function, because I think broadly in the body of Christ, there there may be an underdeveloped understanding of what the Bible says about how the church should be led, and uh, why it's important that we do our best to adhere to that. So that will finish out the series. And and just to let you know, when it comes to our vision, our mission, and our values here at Love City, again, I'm I'm repeating some things from last week, but I know maybe not all of you are here, and and this is so foundationally important to the life and the focus of our church that these are ideas that uh, I'm not hoping you can just recognize, you've maybe heard it before, but something that you could share with someone else, because it's, it's that important. In crafting these things, our goal was not to come up with something new or revolutionary that would be real impressive or exciting to people, kind of based on their felt needs. That's, that wasn't the goal. It wasn't like, all right, so how do we, how do we get people amped, right? That, that wasn't it. We, we believe 
that uh, Jesus is the head of the church. He's the king of all creation. And so our hope was to prayerfully and carefully articulate clearly what it is Jesus said we should be focused on. And to try to encourage people in the reality that there is nothing more exciting in the universe than being included in the mission of the one who created it. And that's not readily apparent, and it, I'm sure for some, if not most of you, the instant feeling you get may not be excitement when thinking about being invited to participate in the mission of God as creator, but the hope is, as we work through this, uh, some of your feelings around it will, will match up with the reality of things. Amen? Anybody here humble enough to acknowledge that sometimes your feelings aren't the best reflection of reality? I'll go first. All right, good. At least some of you. I'll work on convincing the rest, okay? All right, so we're in Mark uh, chapter 12. We're going to start in verse 28 and read to verse 31, okay? One of the scribes came and heard them arguing, and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Okay, some of your translations, this scribe is asking Jesus, what is the most important commandment? And similar to our discussion last week out of the Great Commission, the last thing Jesus gave his disciples before he ascended into heaven, uh, if, if somebody's going to walk up to my king, my master, my creator, and say, hey, what's the most important thing for me to be thinking about? What's the most important commandment? Uh, if, if I'm maybe prone to letting my mind wander or be thinking about something else, I want to come and dial in to that answer. This is a big deal. This might be the biggest question ever asked, and so that makes the answer real important, okay? So here's Jesus' answer. The foremost is here, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Lord our God is one Lord. That's the way the NASB says it. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Praise God for his word. Now the power of this great summary commandment, I want to submit to you, is evident immediately. Uh, let me back that statement up by just continuing to read through verse 34. The, so the scribe asked the question, and now the scribe is responding. The scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one, and there is no one else beside him. Now here's how I know the scribe doesn't quite yet know who he's talking to. Because you, you don't go to Jesus and say, oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> you nod your head <laughs> and say, yes, sir. Uh, he didn't need this guy's uh, agreement, but you know, obviously he's operating out of some ignorance. He continues, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. I bet they didn't. Uh, <laughs> The, so what, why am I saying that proves some of the power of this? Well, if, if you read the rest of the chapter, the beginning of chapter 12, what we have is that Jesus has been doing some amazing things, and the religious leaders of the day are quite annoyed with him, and, uh, but they, they haven't yet, coming into this chapter, it's basically said, like, they were sick enough of him that they really wanted to take him out, but they were scared of the people 
because Jesus had been doing all these amazing things, the people thought Jesus was of God at least. They were still trying to to figure out what that meant, but it wasn't a case where the religious leaders could go grab Jesus and beat him up or kill him and the people not come after them. And so this all of chapter 12 really is a bunch of questions where they're sending people over to try to trip Jesus up. So they ask him about taxes and they ask him about other things. And then this, what they're really trying to do is see, all right, is Jesus going to promote one part of the law over another part of the law and get himself hemmed up in a, in a statement that they can use to start to try to uh, make him look bad is really what it is. And Jesus, as he always does, makes them look foolish by not elevating one part of the law over the other, but by summarizing the entirety of the law in loving God and loving people. And so uh, <clears throat> I, I also want to say that the, the impossibility of obeying this perfectly, these two commands that, that, that Jesus welded together, right? the impossibility of obeying them perfectly, I think is also evident immediately because if we think carefully about Jesus' answer, he said to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind and all of your strength. And I think if all of us will be honest for just a minute, we realize in and of ourselves, having all of our love focused towards God and then subsequently towards people is not something that we have the strength in and of ourselves to do. And it just highlights this idea. You'll, you'll hear people often say, and with good intentions, you know, the Lord will never put you in a situation that you can't handle. He'll never give you more than you can handle, or he'll never ask something of you that you can't handle. And what they're remembering is part of a verse that says the Lord will never let you be in a temptation that you can't overcome. But the truth of the matter is, God has asked us to do many impossible things. Impossible on our own. And that's by design, because one of the biggest lessons that comes out of reading the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation is this idea that I am in desperate need of God to do anything when it comes to obeying him or living the life that uh, he has, he's laid out for those that are going to follow him. And so loving God with the totality of who we are and then loving people out of that relationship is not something that we're going to be able to do just because we decide to do it and try really hard. We're going to need the help of God's Holy Spirit. Thankfully, we have it if we trust him by faith. Amen? Now, this idea of loving neighbor, I I need to to mess around with that for a minute and get everyone real irritated right off the bat here, and then I'll try to fix it, all right? But I have to irritate you. You ready to get irritated? I'm going to mess with you, all right? The main point of this has often been lost, this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Instead of love your neighbor being the main point, it has often become understood that the as yourself is the main point. Now, what am I saying? You'll you'll oftentimes hear people say, well, you you can't love your neighbor if you don't love yourself first. And I'm not saying that there's no truth to that whatsoever, but I'm going to work on it a little bit, try to define it, but also... I'm just trying to come against the idea that the primary message in love your neighbor as yourself is love yourself. Right? I know. 
I know what I'm doing. I know that I'm setting myself up for fights after the service. It's okay. Happy to get into them. Uh, <clears throat> now, so let's try to unpack this a little bit. I do understand that people who are overcome with condemnation and even self-hatred, they will struggle greatly with trying to love others. Okay, that's a real thing. We get that. But to come away with the idea that the main point here is you have to love, love yourself first is backwards. The main point is love your neighbor as yourself is trying to help you begin to understand what that means and what it looks like to the de- what, what degree it is that, that we're called to love people. It's a, as yourself is a qualifier to the main point. The main point being love your neighbor. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> condemnation and self-hatred are sneaky because, ready, they're still self-focus. Condemnation and self-hatred are sneaky because they're still self-focus. What do I mean? I mean the way out of condemnation and self-hatred is not to stare in the mirror until you like what you see. The way out is to embrace the gospel truth that you are imperfect and flawed while at the same time loved and valued as a child of God. Staring at yourself and trying to will yourself to like yourself through platitudes or whatever else you can, you can get to, to come your way, that's, it may work for a little bit, but it's not going to stick. Because it's going to become apparent again in relatively short order that you're broken. Even if you can convince yourself, I'm the best. I'm the best. I, I, I'm, I, I'm nice looking. People think I'm great. This is the truth. This is the reality. And I'm in the mirror like... Gosh darn it, people like you. How long is it going to take before my brokenness, my imperfection, the flawed nature of even maybe what's going on in my heart pops up again and I have to, I have to pep talk myself back out of that. And really what I'm doing is denying reality when I do that. It, it doesn't work. The gospel is the only thing that allows me to look in the mirror and go, yep, there's a need for growth. And yet... Jesus sees me as so valuable, he shed his blood to have me. The greatest authority in all the cosmos has declared my worth. The gospel is the only thing that allows you to be honest and not hate yourself. <laughs> okay? And that's why we want to get the gospel to as many people as possible. We want people free of that trap. You either are going to hate yourself and live in condemnation, or you're going to end up with a false, overinflated sense of, of goodness and self-worth. Try to talk yourself out of the fact that there is still room for growth. You just try to ignore all that, right? And we've all met people on either end of that spectrum. Gospel is the only thing that allows you to not get stuck in those twin ditches, okay? <clears throat> it, the gospel is the only truth in the universe that allows us to be fully honest about our brokenness instead of trying to hide it so we can feel worthy of love. And here's the thing. While Romans 5 says this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's part of how we know the love God has for us is not tied to our performance. It's not tied to reaching some arbitrary level of holiness that, that we've decided is, okay, now I'm accepted by God. No, no, no. Christ went to the cross. Christ made the sacrifice he made while we were yet sinners. His love for us is not conditioned upon our performance. And I'm so thankful that's true. Because if it was, I for sure would not be in. And whether or not you are able to admit it in this moment, 
neither would you. That's fun, isn't it? It's really good. It may not feel great if that's not something you, you have already kind of grabbed a hold of, but it's really good, and it's the path to freedom, okay? So shifting our focus away from the mirror and to the goodness and beauty of God's great love for us, and then learning to see other people with all of their flaws as worthy of love is the most powerful path out of the lie that you are unlovable. It's looking to Christ, and it's looking to the reality, because here's what's weird. Some people can get to the point where it's like, yeah, I can believe God could love them, but it doesn't apply to me. And sometimes that's because we're, 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 and this, this cuts both ways as well. Some people, in comparing themselves to others, think everyone else is great and they're terrible. Or you can be over in the other ditch and think, <laughs> I'm great and everyone else is terrible, right? <laughs> this all cuts both ways. And, and honestly, Satan will take you any way you'll go. Any way he can get you out of the, that middle ground, beautiful, narrow path of gospel truth that allows you to look at everybody and say, yes, room for growth, but beautiful and worthy in the eyes of God, loved by God. Somebody that, though they, they are on a, in a process of being conformed into the image of Christ, they are somebody that right now in this moment, Christ died for. And somebody that I should not be afraid to celebrate and to, and to love and to serve and to sacrifice uh, to love them as I love myself, okay? Uh, the command to love our neighbors ourselves, it, it should not be interpreted through the most extreme cases of self-neglect when people are struggling with things like severe depression or something of that nature. I know those, those are real and, and, and difficult scenarios that exist, but that is not the lens with which we should be interpreting how this verse applies. It should be interpreted through the general reality that most people spend a great deal of time, energy, and resources making sure that their physical, emotional, and spiritual needs are met. That's the, that's the interpretive lens, not, not the maybe kind of niche exception cases, but the broad truth. And we should be willing to care about the needs of others. And I'm going to say that's what loving them is with at least the same intensity that we are willing to care for our own physical, emotional, and spiritual needs. All right, That's really the message we're getting. So if you're paying attention thus far, uh, you probably just noticed that I gave you a definition for love that doesn't match what we often think, because I've not said anything about intense feelings of affection. What we've centered around is a commitment to the good of others that leads to sacrificial action. Okay, so if, if I have floated that to you as a working definition of what it means to walk out this greatest commandment, what you should be looking for is some scriptural backup for that. Why do you feel confident characterizing love in that way? Right? Because this is a thinking church. We love God with all of our mind as well, right? I'm so glad that's in there. You know, in the original... Uh, commandment in Deuteronomy, mind is not included. Jesus added that. And it's not because Jesus forgot what Deuteronomy said, okay? He is the living word of God. But it's because we, we need that piece, particularly in our day. I'm not saying he only did it for that. It's for everybody. But man, do we need it in our day because oftentimes it is, it is thought that those of us who are people of faith, we, the only way we get there is by not using our minds, but this is not an unreasonable faith. 
This is not a fool's faith. Uh, You have to be, if you're going to really engage with what the Bible teaches, you're going to have to be a thinking person. You're going to have to care about loving God with your mind as well. And so what, where do I get this definition? Well, if, if we go to 1 John 3, 16, it says this, by this, we know love. Christian, uh, seeker, somebody trying to see what all this is about. If you want to know what God means when he says love, it says, by this, we know love that he, it's talking about Jesus, laid down his life for us. And so we ought to lay down our lives for one another. By this, we know love that Jesus laid his life down. So God himself in defining, giving us, here's a picture. I want to, if I'm going to teach you, if, if, if God wants to teach his people what love is, look to the cross. Look to Jesus on the cross. The best picture you're ever going to get is Christ Jesus on the cross, if you want to understand what love is. Does that mean in, that Jesus did not have intense feelings of affection towards us? No, he did, but that's an, that's an underdeveloped definition of love. That may be a part of it, but, but real love, by God's definition, leads to sacrificial action. Love, real love costs something. Okay, We see that at the cross of Christ. <clears throat> so, we understand from 1 John 3.16, what we're seeing in, in that kind of narrowed down definition is the greatest sacrifice ever to meet the greatest need ever. The greatest need of mankind is to be set free from slavery to sin and be brought out of death into life and into relationship with the God that made them. Why is that our greatest need? Because that is what we were made for. And any existence aside from that is going to be miserable and pitiful and sad. Jesus at the cross is the greatest sacrifice ever to meet the greatest need ever, and it's the best way to understand what God means when he says love. Now, those of you that have been around here for a amount of time, or you know me, you know there's so many more things I want to say about that. However, next week, as we work through our core values, we're going to talk about defining love biblically, and then and then I'm going to have to try to restrain myself as I talk about those other five core values and not talk about that for an hour, okay? So when I say pray for me, I'm serious. All right. Uh, <clears throat> so if caring about and meeting the needs of others in a sacrificial way is what love looks like practically, okay, if that's true, we've established that scripturally, how then do we love God who has no needs? Does everyone... Are the dots connecting for everyone on that? Okay. If part of what it looks like to love, by God's definition, is to be willing to sacrificially meet the needs of others, what does it look like to love a God who has no needs? God doesn't need anything from us, does he? Doesn't need anything from anybody. Well, that's a super good question. I'm glad all of you asked it. Uh, And so here's uh, the part that will excite some of you and terrify others. Invitation to help me preach. So if you're uh, excited by the possibility of being able to shout out loud, here you go. Give me some ways we can love God. When I say, how do we love God? What's the first thing that comes to your mind? And if you're, if you're brave, go ahead and just shout it out. Let me hear it. What was it? Okay. Did I hear love others? That's the problem. This church is trained too good. I was looking for other stuff because that's the premise I'm trying to get to. You guys steal my punchline when I do this, man. That's good, though. That's real encouraging. What a, so here's some things I thought maybe could be said. 
obey God, right? If I'm going to love God, I'm going to obey him. I worship him. And the premise I was going to get to, thank you, sisters, for actually helping me preach, uh, but also stealing my punchline. Uh, All those other things we could say, ways to love God, are going to lead us right back around to this verse. They're going to lead us right back. What does it mean to obey God? Well, Jesus summarized that for us. To love him. How do I love him? Primarily, by loving people. That doesn't mean I don't have great feelings of affection for God. But the sacrificial action it's going to lead me to, I can't hug God. I can't share truth with God that God doesn't know. I can't meet some practical need that God has because he's got none. Right? But Jesus said things like, if you'll give a cup of cold water to a little one in my name, it's as if you've done it to me. All right? It brings us back to loving our neighbor. I'm going to read a fairly substantial portion of scripture out of 1 John chapter 4, okay? If you want to turn there, you can. I'm going to start in verse 7, uh, but you don't need to. If, if, if you learn better by just listening, then do that. If you'd like to turn there yourself, go ahead. 1 John 4, 7. I'm establishing a big premise here. I'm saying something that I think some people on its face would not be comfortable with. I'm not saying that the totality of our love for God is expressed in loving other people, but I'm saying the primary way our love for God is expressed is in loving other people. So that's, that's a pretty big deal, and I'm not sure everyone would buy that right off the bat. And that's fine. I, again, we love God with our mind. I, I want us to, if this is going to be the, uh, a primary shaping force of what we do as a church, and, and I'm hoping what you do in your individual life, then it should be well established from the scriptures. So starting in 1 John 4, verse 7, is it, is it too much for me to say the primary way that love for God is expressed is in loving people? That's, that's what we're going to investigate together, okay? So let's do that. 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, beloved, let's love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us, that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. Again, hey, if you forgot what love looks like, look to Jesus. It's, it's just the same idea, a different way. All right. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, propitiation, it's, it's adjacent to atonement. Basically, it contains within it the idea that Jesus got in front of the righteous wrath of God that we deserved, okay? Jesus was the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. You see how this, in the mind of the apostle, this is so connected. There's, there's, there's really no gap here. And I think he's just keying off what Jesus taught him, okay? Uh, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. One equals the other. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God remains in us, and his love is perfected in us. For years, verse 12, the first part, puzzled me. Because I, I knew I was reading this incredible, like, just, like, treatise on the power of God's love and what it means, and then, and then there seemed to be this obscure statement in, in the middle, no one has seen God at any time. And it, 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 took, it took far longer than I'd like to admit for me to understand why that's there. I believe it's there, because it's screaming the premise I came here to try to establish for us. Is the primary way we love God, is it right to say the primary way we love God is to love people? That's the way he's given us to express our feelings of affection for him and our, our commitment to him. 
That's why it says no one has ever seen God. You can't hug God. You can't give God a cup of water. You can't, you can't, God is blessed by your love for him, but it's not in in the same way that when we bless a person, it's not like we're going to be able to meet some need that he has. God is totally and fully fulfilled in himself. And it's only out of an overflow of his love that he even created us. We're not bringing anything to the table that God didn't have before us. He's just got so much love that he decided to make us and deal with all of our foolishness so that in the end, it could be us and him forever. He just wanted us. God's never needed us. And that makes me, I mean, if I'm struggling to love him, I don't know how you could after realizing that. We were not a necessity. Are you serious? After all the trouble we cause? And he knew what it would cost. And out of that overflow of love, he still decided, yeah, this is worth it. Mm, mm, mm. That's a good God. And, you, and we see why no one has ever seen God is there. What's the very next phrase? If we love one another, God remains in us. His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we remain in him and he in us. By this we know we remain in him and he in us. Because he has given to us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. Our hope has to be in Christ, okay? Verse 16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God and God remains in him. By this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Those of you struggling with condemnation, that's a good verse, man. Think about that. What does that mean? We can have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, we also are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. It's good fun, isn't it? For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. That's the tie to that obscure statement in 12, right? When I was a younger man, I had to keep learning about context. I had to keep learning about, man, if I just keep reading a little bit, maybe it'll make itself plain, right? And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. If if there's some, first of all, I would submit to you that if there was a, a passage of scripture worth memorizing, this would be on my list. I would also say that when it comes to understanding the love of God and how it intersects with our responsibility, this greatest commandment, what we're supposed to be thinking about and doing as followers of Jesus in this earth, 1 John 4, 7 through 21 is real, real helpful to narrow the focus down. And, and, and that's, and that's the thing. remember, when, when the scribe asked Jesus for the greatest commandment trying to trip him up, he didn't do what he wanted. He didn't pick a commandment and elevate it above the others. He summarized the entirety of God's law in saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Paul picks that theme up. Romans 13, starting in verse 8, no, oh, oh, no man anything but to love him. And if you'll do that, if you'll love your neighbor, you will have fulfilled the whole law. That the whole law all the time was, was trying to give specifics for the people of Israel to, to, to know what it means to love God and to love each other. And that summary is so helpful for me. 
Because if I had 613 laws to try to focus on and, and, and think about all the time and try to run every situation and choice that I'm going to make through that large grid, I, I, you know, some of you have higher aptitude than me, clearly. It probably wouldn't be a problem for you, but I'd get lost. I'd be distracted and not be real effective. But man, the Lord Jesus has given me this incredible compass that always points true north. And that true north is love God and love people. And so any situation I'm in, I can pull that compass out and go, oh, what does it look like for me to love God and to love people? How do I navigate this difficult thing by those standards? It's so incredibly helpful. Really narrows it down, <laughs> probably for guys like me on the simpler end of the spectrum, okay? As I said, Jesus said, give a cup of cool water to a little child in my name and you've done it unto me. Over and over and over again, we see this idea that God considers you loving people well in his name as loving him. They're, they're connected. And Jesus, remember the scribe asked for a greatest commandment, and Jesus gave what sounds like to love God, love people. But Jesus put them together and left no room for us to separate them. We're trying to build a case here for why that is, and build a case for why this should be supreme and primary for us in the way we conduct ourselves. And, and how we determine what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. I'm going to read another significant portion of Scripture. Uh, you guys are Bible folks, right? Everyone's good with these big chunks of Scripture? Give me a thumbs up if you're all right with big chunks of Scripture. Okay, great, good. <clears throat> it's way better than my opinion anyways. Matthew 25, okay? The idea that loving people and loving God has an equal sign between it. Then the king will say to those on his right, uh, many of your Bibles, if you go to look at Matthew 25, starting in verse 34, it'll say something about judgment day on it. Okay, so that's kind of the context of where we're at. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when? When did, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did it for me. And then in, in the, the scarier part of this discourse, he flips it and inverts it. And to the goats on the left, he basically says the same thing, but says, you didn't do those things. Okay? <clears throat> well, let's just read it. Why not? Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, you accursed people, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they themselves also will answer, Lord, when did... We see you hungry or thirsty or as a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it for one of the least of these, you did not do it for me either. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I think it's important at this juncture to stop and establish a premise because we started out talking about the dangers of condemnation and many people can read verses like that and end up exactly there in condemnation, feeling like the, the primary thrust of a sermon like this is to load you up with heavy burdens about all the things you're not doing good enough. 
or how you should be loving people more, or how you should be sacrificing more. And if the Spirit of God is to convict you uh, along the way through this study of God's Word about something you should change or, or modify, then far be it from me to stand in the way of that. Uh, that's part of the purpose of why we do this week in and week out. The, the assumption is that we all, since we are not yet perfect, have room for the Spirit of God to be convicting us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ, right? Like we're all just kind of buckled up for that reality. Uh, I'm not Jesus yet, so I can grow. Amen. Okay? But it is real clear as you read this that, that loving people is not how you are saved, but it is a great indicator of whether you are or not. What do I mean by that? I mean, what Jesus is not teaching here is that by going out and doing acts of mercy and loving people and meeting the, the physical, emotional, spiritual needs of others, that we are earning salvation. That would run exactly opposite to the entirety of what the rest of the scriptures teach about how we're saved. What he's simply saying is, if you experience genuinely the love of God through Christ, there will begin to be a compulsion, perhaps small at first, but the hope is that there will be a growing compulsion in you for the rest of your life to love people in the name of God, to sacrifice whatever it may take to love people in the name of God. It's, it's a really helpful thermometer for the temperature of our passion and love, right? Because just because we could get very emotionally exuberant in a certain moment about God, that, and, and that's not a bad thing, that's a good thing. I, I would, you know, I would give one of my pinkies to see a little more emotional exuberance sometimes around this place when it comes to the gospel, the goodness of Christ, all right? I'm joking, but kind of, okay? Uh, and I, I know that there's all kinds of reasons and there's personality types and whatever, and so I'm not getting on anybody. Uh, but what I do want to make sure we understand here is the, the, don't, please don't come away from this sermon feeling like, okay, uh, I just had a big impossible load of, uh, of, of commands laid upon me that there's no way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to do it. Because again, remember what we said at the beginning, loving God with all of who we are and what we are and loving people as ourselves, that is an impossible command in and of our own strength. And so if any part of you is like, yeah, you know what, I do realize there's room for my love for God to grow in the expression of loving people, if that's part of what you come away with here, it, it doesn't mean go out of here and, and try harder in your strength. It may be simply um, putting your eyes towards heaven and asking Jesus for help. Lord, help me to see the opportunities around me to love people in your name. Help me that more of my thoughts and the contemplations of even my heart are, are bent towards this kind of primary focus that is meant to be the primary focus for all who follow you. Because I'm, Lord, I'm realizing there's many things that distract me. It could, it could, it, it could be a prayer like that. I'm not trying to put words in anybody's mouths. I'm just saying uh, that the, the goal of this, the goal of gospel Bible preaching is never to guilt you into action. That's not how God operates. This is not a, this is not a forceful push or else, this is a loving invitation to contemplate and to consider what it might look like to walk more fully in the beauty of what Jesus has for you as his followers. So see all of this as an invitation, not as a bludgeoning, okay?
That's real important. Loving God and loving people are the first part of our mission because Jesus lifted this command to the place of supremacy where it belongs. All right? And so hopefully you're thinking, all right, so if this is our mission to love God and love people and make disciples, how does this idea of loving God and loving people, how does it intersect with our vision? Because you said the vision is the goal. That's what we're trying to accomplish. We want as many people as possible to meet Jesus and love him and worship him and, and to have joy in him, right? So that's, that's our vision. So this is the mission. It's how we're supposed to be accomplishing the vision. How, how do those intersect? How do those dots connect? All right. <clears throat> Let me read you this. This is John chapter 13, verse 34. One verse, not a lot, okay? So for those of you that uh, were hoping there wasn't any more big chunks, I think we're out of those. Uh, it says this, A new command I give you, this is, this is Jesus speaking, Love one another as I have loved you. Okay, so there's another impossible. Lord, I need you. <laughs> I'm supposed to love people like you've loved me. Perfectly? Okay, I'm out. Going to need Holy Spirit's help for that. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. In case you didn't catch it the first time, he said it a different way. Verse 35, by this, here's how it intersects. Here's how our mission intersects with our vision. By this, by this, us loving each other the way God has loved us, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. If our hope and our goal is to join Jesus in his hope and goal of as many people as possible, meeting him, realizing how much he loves them, and having the joy that comes from being reunited to God through faith in him, if that's the goal of our master and we're going to take that on as our goal, then then how do we get there? Friends, over and over again and in in a variety of ways, so many times that it's, it's irrefutable, the summary There's a lot of different things it can mean, but the summary is that we're going to be people that walk in love, that we're going to love one another. Jesus said that is the primary way the world is going to see. This kind of sacrificial love that says, I'm going to be more concerned about your needs than mine, it cuts so across the grain of what is natural that it absolutely, that's, when, when, when Jesus talks about us being light in the world, part of how we stand out from a dark, dead landscape is the light of love. That's part of what the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be known for in the world. And tragically, that is not always the case. Many times it's not the case. An an almost unbelievable love for people is not the first thing that comes to mind for many people when they hear the word church. And my question to us today is what are we willing to do about it? I know we don't have an international platform, we're not on TV, we may not feel like we can have much effect on that, but friends, you live in a neighborhood, you have a job, you've got families, there's a bunch of eternal souls that Jesus loves dearly that you can have an effect on. And, and if, if this is right, if, if genuine love is the way to do it, you're not going to be able to show that real effectively at a distance anyways. You're going to have to get up close, kind of like the King of Glory did. Amen. Ooh, isn't that going to be messy? <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it is. Are you kidding me? It'll be super messy. And hard. Really hard. But beautiful and good and best. 
possible outcome for a human. <clears throat> the last part, let's love God, love people. And I, what time is it? Oh, that's not so bad. I thought that would be way worse. I am, I am purposely and intentionally out of love for you shutting that down right now. Because you all know I got more to say on the subject. We're going to move to make disciples. Why is that the last part? Okay, well, that brings us back to the text that we looked at last week in discussing our vision. Okay, that's Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Jesus came to them, spoke, and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth, right? So go, therefore. What's the, what's the implication of all authority being given to Christ? Then you go, therefore, and make disciples. Where? All the nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey all that he commanded. And then the precious promise that makes, it, makes me have any hope whatsoever that we can do what he asked. He said, lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. This is known as the Great Commission for a reason. This is a summary statement. And what we see in it is, is this command to make disciples. So we're talking about our mission. It's the way we're going to accomplish our vision. We're going to love God, love people. And, and a big part of what that looks like is making disciples. And I realize in our current cultural moment, if <clears throat> this is, the reason I've said twice now, we didn't... We had hard decisions to make. When you pick a, a, a vision and a mission, you know that's something that you're going to say a lot. You, you got to think about, like, how does that hit the ears of people? I understand the phrase, make disciples, is, is, is not something people are saying around their kitchen table generally very often, right? That's, that's a pretty biblically specific phrase, and it, it, and, and in a day where oftentimes the approach is, all right, let's... Let's do everything we can to make every part of all of this as palatable as possible to somebody that doesn't yet know Jesus. I'm, I'm not against making things palatable. I, I, I think there's, an, there's a great wisdom in understanding that as time progresses, there's freedom to uh, change methods and even the way some things are said and all of that. But uh, in, in order to open up the possibility for people to understand that this gospel message is for them, okay? Not against any of that. However, there are certain things that are, are, are so foundational, and it, it matters so much that you're specific, because if, if you're willing to play with the language, then, then you end up losing the essence of the thing. Because making disciples is not the same as making converts. Jesus didn't say, go into all the world and make converts, he says a very specific word that has very specific meaning. He said, go make disciples. And, and you can, I'm so thankful, you know, even Webster Merriam gets this. Because you can go to a, a Merriam dictionary and you look up disciple. The first definition, it gets watery after that. But the first definition is going to be this. Somebody that believes something to the degree. An adherent to a doctrine, they believe it enough, they're willing to assist in the spreading of the doctrine. A convert can just come to the place of believing a thing. Okay, I believe that now. And that's, that's great. That's where most of us start. But Jesus didn't say make converts. Don't get, getting someone to raise their hand and say, yep, I believe that is not the end of the job. Making disciples is what our master called us to. And that means training people to be able to then go and assist in other people finding out about how worthy Jesus is of their worship and how much he loves them. We have to be willing to pay the price to make disciples. <clears throat> and if, 
let's say Merriam-Webster didn't get it. If, if Merriam-Webster, uh, or no dictionary, had that, that definition of disciple that includes assisting in helping other people to see the, the truth of the doctrine, all we would have to do... All right, when Jesus said make disciples, where, how could I figure out what he meant? Hmm. I don't know. Look at how he made disciples. Like, did he, did he just... Did he get, pick his 12 guys and say, all right, boys, we're going to have a class. I'm going to teach you about the nature of God and things. And, you know, okay, so does everyone, now, do you believe it? Yep, do you believe it? You know what? Let's save time. Everyone here, if you raise your hand, raise your hand if you believe what I just taught you. Okay, good. All right, off you go. No, man, he spent three years with them teaching them what it was going to look like to give the entirety of their lives to go out and to spread the good news about Jesus. That's a disciple. Inherent in the word disciple is to be a disciple maker. Disciples make disciples. And it is so easy. It is so easy in our time and day to sit back into the idea that as I can be a convert and a consumer of what Christianity and professional Christians have to offer because all of the rest of our life we are catered to in our Western context as consumers. Much of our little world here on this side of the globe spins around because people are able to train you to consume. And I said at the beginning that the church is different than every other organization on the planet. This is not a business. That is not, we don't operate the same as a business. Our goal is not the same as a business. It's not to have the greatest goods, Christian goods and services that you can find so you come consume them here instead of somewhere else. Our goal is to train you to be a disciple. The Bible says the people of God are supposed to do the work of God. That that what Christian leaders are supposed to do is train the people for the work of the ministry. Is to continually invite you into the most fulfilling, beautiful, purpose-filled existence you can possibly have as a human. And that is to participate in the mission of your God. That is why... I'm sure for some of you, it seems maybe like we're intense here sometimes. I, I, like if you've wondered, like, does he get it? <laughs> does he understand how intense uh, he is sometimes? I do get it. I do understand. But friends, this is not just some play around patty cake type stuff. We're talking about like the essence of reality and what really matters. <laughs> we're talking about the, the bottom line of what God, through the entirety of his word, we have, we have some of these summary things that funnel it all down to a couple things. Loving God and loving people. What does that mean? I've, I've been thinking about it deep for 20 years, and I know I haven't gotten even near past the surface. Making disciples. How far does that go? What does that look like? How much of God's help am I going to need to really do that? Friends, this is... <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to invite you into something far greater than you're going to be offered anywhere else. Because if God made us, and we were made for him, then every other attempt we make to try to find meaning and purpose outside of those main things he gave us is going to falter, and it's going to fail. And it's going to lead to so much despair. Because there is something in us that, that can tell. There's something in us that can tell. Whether or not I'm a part of what I'm really meant to be a part of. There's, we are eternal. We're supposed to love God with all of our soul as well. You remember that? 
We know. Why do, why do you think so many people are scurrying around trying to find some shred of meaning? You think it's, you think it's just because, or you think it's because every one of us have a sense of brokenness that we're trying to fix? And friends, there's only one fixer. There's only one healer. There's only one who can do anything about it. And his name is Jesus. And we want as many people as possible to meet him, to realize he loves them, and to learn what it means to love him in return. That's why our vision what it is, is what it is. That's why our mission is what it is. And so we, all of us, may have to be willing to take the time to explain to people what making disciples is and why that's not some weird cultish phrase. But it's worth it. It's really worth it. If all we do as a church and in our individual lives is make consumer converts and not love-motivated and dedicated disciples, we have fallen short of our Lord's great commission. And this leads me to the last thing I'm going to say, for those of you that are waiting for that part. Um, In the same way that last week, I invited you to consider what the vision or goal for your life is, and, and I tried to make the case, I, I think I did, make a case that everyone should have a vision or a goal for their life that all the rest of their goals have to answer to. I think also everyone should have a mission for their life. And I also think that when Jesus gave this, the, these things to the church, it was, it's yes, us corporately, but I think also individually. And so I'm encouraging you to just take some time this week to think about what it might look like if the guiding goal and vision of your life was for as many people as possible to meet and worship and love and joyfully serve Jesus. Maybe you're, maybe, maybe you're not at a place where you can even, it, it's, too, it's too much to think about jumping in that water yet, but I'm just asking you to think about what it might look like. Just open yourself up to that, that idea. And if, what, what if the mission of your life, the, 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 the primary way you, you navigate moving through this world and making decisions and priorities and all of that was if your mission was loving God, loving people, and making disciples, what might that look like? And ask God to show you why it's far, far, far more beautiful and fulfilling than any other thing we could focus on. That's what we were made for. That's the invitation, friends. Will you pray with me? Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat> thank you for knowing that it's really helpful for us to take all of the things that we could think about, all of the many prohibitions in the law and all of the things that we're commanded to do in the law and to bring them down to this summary statement that we are to love you and to love others. And I thank you, God, that we don't have to conjure up this love in and of ourselves, but it's a response to a great love we've already experienced. Lord, I thank you that you went first. I thank you that you showed us very clearly what you mean, that you have not hidden these things from us, but it's, it's an open view. And sometimes, Lord, it's just a matter of us taking the time to look at what is plain. And so I thank you for that opportunity this morning. Thank you that as your people, we, we got to take this little bit of time and look at what is plain and consider together what it would look like 
for us to either begin walking in obedience to these things or to continue to grow in obedience to these things. Because, Lord, this life and the fact that we have an enemy and the fact that things are broken, it it means we are prone to distraction. We are prone to have other primary goals besides your glory and people coming to know you. It, it means we are, we are prone to have missions that, that become of greater importance to us than loving you and loving people and making disciples. Lord, help us to see, please help us to see how all of the things in our lives, this is, what you're not calling us to is, is this singularity of focus and, and is that all we can do is walk the streets and preach your gospel or all we can do is what oftentimes would be considered ministry. Lord, help us pull back the veil and show us what it looks like for all of our life, everything we do, work and family and, 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 and all of our endeavors. Help us to see how those things are a part of this vision and mission, how they can be motivated by these base, bottom, foundational things that you have given us to focus on. Thank you for making it simple for us, even though sometimes we don't act like it is. Help us, Lord, to trust you by faith as you continue to show us how faithful and true you really are. We love you. Thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.